believe that nothing has happened or that nothing has ever happened in their practice and that nothing perhaps ever will happen in their practice. <laughs> I want to talk about tonight is one model that actually does happen in practice of what really the effort or the qualities or characteristics known in Pali as the ten paramis or the ten perfections or forces of purity that we cultivate and engender that grow and develop through doing what we are doing here now. Having a model such as, as this particular idea of forces of purity or qualities that we develop helps cut through the distinction that we might hold between the inner and outer work that we do, between this formal inner spiritual practice and our lives in the world. It's understanding the integration of these and the power of the Dharma or the truth in all aspects of our lives, bringing all of our lives into the same framework as an expression of the truth or a manifestation of our understanding. The concept or the idea of these forces of purity is not in the sense of an accumulation or an acquisition. It's not sort of like we have a stockpile that we add to, but that as we as we grow, as we cultivate these qualities, they become more natural within us, they strengthen. The idea is that nothing happens by accident, nothing happens haphazardly, and that if we plant the seed of an apple, the natural consequence of that will be to get an apple tree that bears the fruit of an apple. To plant the seed of an apple and to cry and moan and beg and plead to get a mango will not work. It's unnatural. It's not in harmony or in accord with the law of nature. And yet to be able to reap the fruit of an apple or reap the fruit of a mango there is a way to do that. There is an order to the universe, even if we do not understand it completely. We can intuit it. We can become in harmony with it. And so the cultivation of these forces of purification leads to the natural expression of these in our lives. There's a legend around the, the time of the Buddha's enlightenment, the very night of his enlightenment, and I mentioned this a little bit before, where he's sitting with the resolve to fully understand himself and the nature of life. He's sitting with this resolve and he's being attacked by Mara. He sees ghastly visions of bodiless heads and headless bodies, and he's attacked by rainstorms and hailstorms and mudstorms. And throughout it all, he sits unmoving. He sits with equanimity and calm. 
And Mara produces desire and pride and anger and all kinds of temptations to sway the Buddha from that resolve. The legend goes on to say that the very last weapon that Mara used to try to get the Buddha up from his seat was, was really the question of doubt. That doubt arose with the question posed by Mara, what right do you even have to be sitting there with that aspiration? What right do you have to be making this statement to the universe that you consider yourself capable and worthy of fully understanding? And in response to that question, it said that the Buddha made the mudra or the gesture that is depicted in the statue behind me, in the very famous posture of the Buddha, where he reached over one knee and touched the earth. In doing so, he was calling, it is said, upon the earth itself to bear witness to the force of these paramis, or powers of purity, that he had cultivated for lifetimes. And it was these forces, or the purity of these forces, that formed the basis for his conviction and faith that he did indeed have the right to be there, and that he was capable of fulfilling this aspiration. So it said that he reached over his knee and touched the earth. The earth bore witness to these lifetimes of cultivating these qualities, Mara was vanquished and he went on through that night and became fully enlightened. So I'd like to discuss a little bit each of these ten qualities. The recognition that even for us to be sitting here in this room implies a certain cultivation of these as strengths of being. And with the understanding that these are the expression or the manifestation of our practice. This is what we are actually doing. Whether it's with a knee pain or a headache or a body of white light or rapture or boredom, this is what is actually going on. Both in terms of our formal practice and in our manifestation in the world. The first of these paramis or forces of purity is that of generosity. As an inner experience, generosity is considered to be that of letting go, of letting be. It's the force or the, the flexibility in the mind that is non-grasping, not holding on, not grasping. The purity of generosity in any moment is the freedom in that moment from a continual state of wanting. Often we find, as we look at our experience, that actually we live in a tremendous psychological hunger. It's a mind state of, of poverty of want, feeling wanting and needing and desire to fill, to fill some gap or fill some hole. And with that hunger, with that wanting, comes the, 
the concomitant agitation of the fear of not having enough, not getting enough. And so it's a cycle of desire and fear. Generosity is the ability to let go, to not, to step aside from from that sense of fear and impoverishment and wanting. In the world, the expression of generosity is through our, our giving of material goods or of our service, our time, our energy. And this is very important. The Buddha said at one point that if we knew, as he did, the power of giving, we would not let a single meal go by without sharing. That that ability to step away from that sense of wanting and needing to clutch and the fear of not having enough, even in a, an act of just giving some food, is very, very powerful. And here, within the context of doing intensive practice, it's the cultivation of a generosity of spirit and a sense of openness and allowing, not holding on and not needing things to be a certain way, but a generosity towards oneself, allowing a whole range of experience to manifest. The second of these qualities that we're cultivating is that of morality or virtue. Morality is the essential foundation for developing clarity of mind and for developing wisdom. And even though there are some common connotations in this day and age to morality as depicting um, fear of life perhaps or prudishness In fact, a commitment to not harming, not harming oneself or not harming another, is an expression both of great power and of compassion. The Buddha said that the gift of morality was the gift of fearlessness. Because the commitment to not harming is the commitment that allows us both to be worthy of trust from others and also to live in a state of trust ourselves, a fearlessness, not fearing for the consequence of our actions. And I'll read you a little bit from a sequence in one of the texts about just how morality functions as the basis for our understanding. It starts by saying that moral discipline or commitment to morality is the foundation for the development of restraint. What restraint means in this context is even if strong greed or hatred arise in the mind, it's not necessarily being overpowered by them, being overwhelmed by them, and being forced to to carry them out. Restraint, which keeps us from committing acts which harm others or ourselves, is the foundation for the development of absence of remorse. We can live with that remorse, which means without guilt and without a lot of fear, without the kind of hesitation and confusion that comes from 
a lot of complicated action, painful action. It allows us to live in that way and allows us to die in that same way. In this sense, the absence of remorse is said to be the foundation or the necessary basis for the development of gladdening, which means the kind of lightness and ease that comes within our hearts from simplicity, from the incredible simplicity of just being straightforward and open with our energy. This gladdening is said to be the foundation for the development of happiness. It's a very special meaning of happiness. It's happiness in the sense of peace or of composure, of strength. And it was in this context that the Buddha said, there is no higher happiness than peace. It's a very unwavering happiness. The sense of happiness or lightness in the mind is the foundation for the development of tranquility, which is stillness, clarity, rather than the turbulence and the agitation that are produced by worry or remorse or speculation or fear based on complexity. Tranquility is the foundation for the development of concentration, which is being able to keep the mind steady and one-pointed and powerful, not haunted by by guilt or agitated speculation about what to do, how to disentangle ourselves from some, some complex fabric. Concentration is the foundation for the development of correct knowledge and vision, seeing things as they truly are. Without having a certain amount of concentration, being able to focus, being able to be, be one-pointed, then it's very difficult to penetrate <coughs> into the true nature of things. Having correct knowledge and vision is the foundation for the development of dispassion, which in this sense means equanimity in all circumstance. Dispassion is the foundation for the development of the fading away of greed and hatred. As we are able to experience things fully with detachment, not clutching that which is pleasant, not pushing away that which is unpleasant, then those forces of grasping and aversion begin to die within us. And the fading away of these, the fading away of greed and hatred, is said to be the foundation for the development of freedom. And so in just that way, simply committing ourselves to living a life of compassion and kindness towards ourselves and towards others becomes the link for, for providing ultimate freedom. The third force of purity, or parami, is also concerned very much with simplicity. And it's the force of the power of renunciation it's as though we were to ask ourselves the question, what do I really need to be happy? And it becomes obvious that when our lives are complex, 
and we have a lot and we need a lot and we do a lot, then we have to have more and do more and get more in order to maintain it. And so in some sense, often our lives become maintenance. It's a question of having something and then shoring it up by having something else. And this does not mean giving up everything. But it's being able to ask ourselves very honestly that question, what do I really need to be happy? It's a renunciation to some, some degree of sensory stimulation. If you think of the six senses of hearing and seeing, touching, smelling, since, uh, where am I, <laughs> tasting, and mind objects, and you think about the craving that we have to be stimulated. So we have to see more and hear more. And then whatever that, that experiences passes and we feel we need more and we need more and we need more. And what, what an incredible treadmill that often is in our lives. You compare that to the inner silence or the inner peace that is just luminous. Sometimes I envision ourselves, all of us, almost in a kind of um, egg shape. And I see this egg which is filled with light and it's got all these things hanging on it. And it's just walking around with this incredible clutter that it's carrying around. And it's it's this very strange balancing act as it's sort of wobbling along and adding more to the clutter all the time. You can imagine just the relief of beginning to shed some of that. It's renunciation. It means not, not holding on, not, not acting out of that sense of perpetual craving or wanting. Within the practice, it often means renouncing a sense of getting results of having a particular accomplishment to carry around like a trophy and to be able to say, I did it, I got it. It's to renounce that sense of having a particular goal and rather to be tranquil in the true understanding that whatever is happening is enough. that in and of itself, this moment is enough. And that it is not a question of trying to get rid of this moment, whatever its experience is, in order to attain something else. But rather a question of experiencing this moment so fully, to the very depth, that we truly understand it. Renouncing results, that sense of a future, future accomplishment, future attainment. There's a quote I'd like to read from the Tao Te Ching. It says, there is no greater burden than desire, no greater curse than discontent. No greater misfortune than wanting something for oneself. Therefore, 
One who knows that enough is enough will always have enough. To begin to renounce, to take delight in simplicity and in, in this very moment, in the recognition that whatever is happening is always just enough. So there's generosity, morality, and renunciation. The next quality or force of purity that we cultivate in the practice is that of wisdom or understanding. It's penetrating to the very depth of of each moment as it arises. And it's through one's own vision of the truth developing an understanding into impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and emptiness or egolessness. Through looking at our own experience of our bodies and minds and recognizing that with a clarity of vision or a purity of vision, the Dharma or the truth will reveal itself and that we have a certain role to play and it has a certain role to play and that if we pay attention, which is our role, it's our task, If we pay attention, we will be able to see for ourselves the nature of things and to see how very transient, how impermanent, how ephemeral is this body and mind, is this whole universe. It is so very fleeting. It is so transitory. Just in a moment, an experience arises and passes away and to know for ourselves that with that degree of change, with that truth of change, there cannot be a phenomenal experience that is going to be permanently satisfying because nothing is permanent. And so to look in the world of change for unchanging fulfillment is going to be suffering. And then to see that within this constant, incessant change, there is no substance, there is no, there is no unchanging entity. It is all a process happening according to its own nature. It's essenceless or substanceless. And this, of course, is the heart of the meditation practice, is being able to develop our own vision of the truth, of how things are. The fifth of these qualities is that of effort or energy. And in many, many ways, effort is the most important element. Someone once called this particular branch of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, the laundry list school of Buddhism because there are so very many lists. There's the Ten Paramis and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances and and on and on and on. And there's one list which I like a lot, which is a kind of grand culmination of a lot of the lists. A lot of the lists are combined into one list. This is the 37 Factors of Enlightenment. 
And because it's the, the combination of, of a lot of other lists, there's a fair amount of repetition in this one major list. And one thing that's very interesting is that the factor or the mind state of, of effort or energy appears more often in this list than any other mind state, more than mindfulness, more than concentration, more than wisdom. The quality of effort is the key to it all. Because despite what seems to be the case, often as we sit here and thinking that some people must be innately fit for this kind of endeavor, whereas other people are simply incapable of it, the truth is that effort is the great equalizer. Those who put forth the effort get the results. And there is no one who puts forth the effort who does not get the results. Effort is the key to the entire practice. And it's a sense of, it's a sense of passion. It's a sense of wholeheartedness. Being able to abandon oneself to the task, to the, the quality of developing mindfulness being able to abandon oneself without holding anything back. So that one Zen master put it, cut your bargaining, only go straight ahead. There's no bargaining, there's no temporizing. It's right now. It's right here and now. And yet it's not a state of struggling or striving is very much in the sense of right effort. It's not the effort to change what is going on, to make it better, to make it different. It's not the effort to have something happening other than what is actually happening, but very much the effort, the wholehearted commitment to returning to an experience of the present moment and to developing the power of awareness. The sixth of these forces is that of patience. Patience is a long, enduring mind. It's the quality of constancy. It's the perfect complement to the quality of energy. It's not a sense of waiting it out with grim determination until things can get better. But it's a sense of opening. It's a sense of opening into what is happening right now. I used to comfort myself with the thought that if nothing else was happening in my practice, at least I was developing patience. And it was true. When it's true patience, not a grim determination or a complacency, but a renewal of fully experiencing what is happening right now, then it's very powerful. Someone, I told some of you this story in one of my groups. You know, someone once wrote us a letter addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. Someone else once wrote us a letter addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. <laughs> but that's a whole other talk. For this talk, 
Someone really, really and truly once wrote us a letter addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. And that is so much our cultural consciousness that things should happen instantly. Just instantly, if not sooner. So you can see what, what an incredible endeavor it is for us to develop patience. To accept the gradualness of the unfolding and to continue to be able to be as wholehearted no matter what is happening. I'll tell you a story about Joseph, even though he's not here. He told me once that, um, and I've since repeated it around the world, <laughs> that when, when he was very young, 10 or 12 years old, he had a garden and he was growing carrots in the garden. And he used to go down and walk near the garden and um, he used to see the little green shoots coming out of the soil, the top of the carrot. And he used to get so excited that the carrots were growing that he'd run over and pull them out so he could look at them. <laughs> and this is sort of what we do. You know, we think, I've got to see how it's going. <laughs> and so we just wrench it out. To be patient, to be allowing, to understand that it is following its own course and to surrender to the nature. We have a certain task, which is to plant the seed and to water it and to nurture it, to give it care. We don't have to pull the carrot out of the ground to see if it's growing or not. It will grow on its own. So to develop patience. The seventh of these qualities or forces is that of truthfulness. The force of truthfulness or honesty in our practice and in our lives is very, very powerful. It's said that as the Buddha was going through his many lives, cultivating these paramis, perfecting these forces so that he could make that aspiration towards enlightenment, it's said that in many of these lifetimes, being a human being, he often committed deeds that were not very wholesome. He hurt himself or hurt someone else in some way. He'd steal or he'd break a promise or something like that. But it is said that the one thing he never ever did in all of those lifetimes, from the moment of first setting upon the path of cultivating these forces to the moment of his full enlightenment, the one thing he never did was to tell a lie. Because the commitment to truth, to understanding truth, cuts through all boundaries, from mundane truth to super mundane truth, from worldly truth to deep spiritual truth. It's a commitment towards honesty. So it's very powerful. The relative truth in this moment is our vehicle for being able to touch ultimate truth. And to somehow tell a lie to ourselves or to others is to, to steal away that opportunity in that moment to use that as a vehicle. So it's really a very grave thing. In the practice 
to cultivate a sense of honesty and surrender with ourselves about what we're experiencing. And certainly in our lives to have a commitment towards the truth, towards being honest. There's something that happened to me once which I think illustrated this point very clearly. I was staying with some friends and another friend of ours was going to India with her husband to do a meditation retreat. And she was upset, or she was afraid that her mother would get very upset if she knew that in the end this woman was going alone and her husband wasn't going. And so she told her mother that they were going together and they'd be gone a month and then she would come back, they would come back. And she told her mother that just in case of an emergency, if anything should happen, to call this number. So that was our number. About 48 hours before she was due to return, her mother called. It just so happened this woman's husband had just been there for dinner and left. So her mother calls and she says on the phone to the person who answers the phone, have you seen or heard from my daughter or husband? And he said, oh, he just left. <laughs> and her mother said, what do you mean he just left? <laughs> and that started a train of deceit that was almost unbelievable. He said, well, you know, what do I say? He said, well, you know, he came back a few days early because of business and, you know, um, she'll be back in just a day or two and everything is fine. And her mother sensed that we weren't telling her the truth. And so she got more and more nervous and apprehensive and we started telling more and more lies. And then she called back and she said, I know you're lying to me. I know she's dead. You know, it's like, <laughs> tell me what's going on. And we said, no, no, she's fine. You know, we'll get, we'll get him to call you. And then we had to start calling, you know, calling her husband and then finally he called his mother-in-law and she still didn't believe it and she started calling all these different friends in the area to see what the truth might be. So then we all had to call one another to make sure, <laughs> to make sure that we were all telling the same lies. You know? And she still didn't believe it and then she thought, well maybe we won't tell her the truth but if she got her neighbors to call, maybe we would tell them the truth. So then all these strangers started calling, you know, it was the same circuit. And we're all calling one another and we're all telling lies. And finally, someone just could not bear it anymore. And they told her the truth. And she didn't believe it. She had been told, at that point she had been told so many lies. The amazing thing about it was that as we told lie after lie, it became very hard, even ourselves, to distinguish what was true. <laughs> and it, there was a kind of darkness that settled upon us all. We couldn't even tell anymore what was true. Just to illustrate karma a little bit in the end of the story, in the middle of all this, we started receiving these obscene phone calls. <laughs> And the reason I thought it was karmic was because, you know, normally if something like that happens, you can just like not answer your phone for a few hours and, and whoever it is might get tired and stop. But we had to answer the phone because we had to make sure we were all telling the same lies and, you know, in case this woman's mother called, we had to be sure it was her. So 
it was like somehow the, the weirdness of the energy we were sending out into the universe was matched by, by this person and we were kind of, kind of bound to one another through this 48 hour period where we had to answer the phone. <laughs> and it was, it was a wonderful illustration for me, not only of the complexity of getting involved in, in some form of dishonesty, but that darkness, that confusion, that inability even to discern clearly what was true anymore. So it's, it's essential to have a commitment towards honesty. The eighth of these qualities or characteristics is that of, of resoluteness. It's the strength, it's strength of mind rather than forcing the mind. So it's not a question of force, it's a question of strength. To have an ability to set oneself on a certain course and then fulfill it, to be able to fulfill commitment not to be feeble or wavering in a, in a determination, but to have the strength to just carry it out. We do this in the practice in any of a number of ways. It may be as simple as just making the resolution to try to be continuous in the practice so that whenever the mind is wandering, you have the commitment in noticing that to just bring it back maybe the resolution not to move. Whatever it is to develop an ability to fulfill commitment is very important. It's also important as a way of developing self-respect. That strength or power is the basis for self-respect, for knowing that we have that ability not to waver and not to be so swayed by circumstance, but to be resolute. The ninth of these qualities or forces is that of equanimity. Equanimity is the ability through all the vicissitudes of life, and that means pain and pleasure and loss and gain and praise and blame throughout this constant succession of changing events, to be relating to them with a sense of openness and deep acceptance, to understand that this is just the nature of things. There is always praise and blame and loss and gain and pain and pleasure, that this is how things are, that we do not need to fight this, or to fear it, to try to change it, to try to stop it, but that we can learn to live in harmony with it. We can learn to relate to it from a state of being able to touch it deeply and have it touch us with acceptance, with equanimity. The Buddha said at one point, if you speak, people will blame you. If you remain silent, people will blame you. Just to see that it is an incessant cycle 
There are just times in one's life or moments in one's practice when it's radiant and joyful and delightful, and there are times when it's dreary and painful and awful, and there's praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. And that we don't have to shut ourselves off from that experience. The result of learning to relate more and more to our experience from the sense of openness and deep acceptance is the cultivation of a sense of contentment that is beyond measure because it cannot be marred, it cannot be stained by something changing. It is not dependent on things being a certain way. And the last of these qualities or powers that we develop that create the unity between our practice here in a formal sense and our practice in the larger sense of our lives is that of loving kindness or metta. Metta, you know, is the word that's in front of the building. It means loving kindness. It's a sense of of caring and love and kindness towards ourselves and towards others. It's recognizing our basic unity, our fundamental unity, that we're all born, we all die, we all go through the same experiences, and that underlying changing circumstance or personalities or likes or dislikes, there's a oneness. It's developing a sense of love and compassion towards ourselves, and doing the practice or penetrating to deeper and deeper layers of our experience within the context, within the framework of the sense of love and caring. The example used is that doing metta or having a strong feeling of love and care for oneself, it's like if you can imagine taking a teaspoonful of salt and putting it in a glass full of water. Because of the narrow confines of that glass, because of the, the constraints of those boundaries of the glass, even just a teaspoonful of salt in that, in that water will make the water very salty, quite abrasive. Now, if you can imagine taking that same amount of salt, or even a much, much greater amount, and putting it in a pond of fresh water. Clearly, it will not make the water abrasive or salty in that way, because the boundaries, the contours of that body of water are not so limited, it's not so confined or rigid or narrow. And this is said to be the force of loving kindness in the mind, that when this is cultivated, when it is strong, then it's like our minds are open, they're yielding. And so we can come to see many, many things without fear and without aversion. 
allowing ourselves to look within in a very deep way because what we see will not be abrasive, it will not be a difficulty. Creates that openness and spaciousness of mind. So there's metta or loving kindness towards ourselves, and there's metta or loving kindness towards all beings without distinction or exclusion towards those from whom we might want something or towards those whom we might like, especially but a general commitment to expressing that feeling of care and honoring that sense of oneness with all beings everywhere. I'd like to close with another quote from the Tao Te Ching about this feeling or this force of loving kindness. Accept disgrace willingly. Accept misfortune as the human condition. What do you mean by accept disgrace willingly? Accept being unimportant. Do not be concerned with loss or gain. This is called accepting disgrace willingly. What do you mean by accept misfortune as the human condition? Misfortune comes from having a body. Without a body, how could there be misfortune? Surrender yourself humbly. Then you can be trusted to care for all things. Love the world as your own self. Then you can truly care for all things. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, the question was in two parts. The first was about whether, uh, since I had referred to our culture being generally aligned with the sense of the instant meditation society, whether there was some benefit to, to studying or practicing in another culture, such as in Asia. And the second part of that was about the benefit of study and conceptual learning, as well as, as strictly doing the practice. As for the first, in terms of... Um, the essential nature of the practice, I'd say really I don't think there's any particular benefit to being in Asia as opposed to being here. It was a wonderful experience, you know, for those of us who went and largely that was because of the intense confrontation with our own conditioning so that um, 
I think India taught me more about patience than <laughs> I can learn in almost any other situation. And, you know, sometimes we, we talk about some of the experiences we had in India, but you know, you imagine yourself in a situation where um, for no logical, rational reason at all, <laughs> the particular car of the train that you're on is dismantled in the middle of the night, you know, in, in some forlorn, out-of-the-way place, and you wake up in the morning and you have no idea where you are or why in the world they decided to unhook your car <laughs> from the rest of the train. Um, people usually did one of three things. They either learned a lot about trust, surrender, and patience, or they were infuriated, <laughs> or they left. <laughs> and, and so it was, it was a great lesson in a lot of ways, but in terms of actually doing the practice, it doesn't, I don't really think, make any difference. Um, and as to the second part, I think it's of great benefit, actually, to do study as well as practice, because it broadens our understanding or our sense of what we're doing and helps um, with this sense of expansiveness, it's possible to appreciate the moment's experience, even if it doesn't fit into our normal tool of assessment. Because our normal tools of assessment tend to be very conditioned, such as if, it's, if it feels good, it's worthwhile. And if, it, if it's painful or if it hurts, then it's a problem. And we so often fall into that in trying to see what is happening within our practice that sometimes having a broader framework and just knowing some of these lists even, you know, can be very helpful for having a, a deeper or more enduring sense of what's actually going on. The danger seems to be, especially for Western people, is that uh, we often find intellectual understanding so very fulfilling. It's like one of the greatest sense delights that it becomes very possible for us just to dwell on that one level and to feel that that's enough and, and have a sense of control over our experience because we understand it in that way. But as long as there's um, a distinction that's clear between that which we truly know from our experience and that which we understand with our minds, then it seems like a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. I think that's a very good question. Um, and in my own experience, where I have, I have at times not told people the truth, trying to spare them some pain, it, it's all a question of developing your awareness, you know, and trusting your own sense of what's happening and learning through that process of awareness what the rightness or wrongness of that action might have been. And so I've tried to use that tool at different times when I found myself in a situation where it seemed to me the most compassionate thing to do was not to tell the exact truth. 
and then just watched and paid very careful attention to what I was feeling and what was going on, you know, as the consequence of that action. And for me, what I've discovered is that the particular times I can think of where I did that, where I didn't tell someone the truth out of a genuinely compassionate motive, it still had the effect of creating a separation or a distance because of that feeling of need, needing to protect. And that over a period of time, there was more and more distance and more and more of a sense of, I mean, the example that you used was one thing, and sometimes it's, it's something that would be very, very painful for the other person. And I know that I have often had the sense in that particular situation of being the only one to bear the pain because I have chosen to shield this other person. And so not only is there a sense of separation and distance, I found, you know, just from looking at what, go, what goes on within me, there comes to be a sense of resentment that I'm the one that's bearing the pain of this situation and that they're not, even though, of course, I've chosen not to let them in some way. And then, in fact, to be honest, however hard it is to be honest in a painful situation can be the basis for a very different kind of relationship that might have a lot more mutual respect. You know, at least that's been my experience. Um, even though I, I know that those times that I'm thinking of where I did actually not tell the truth, uh, it was from a compassionate motive. It was not, it was not um, as far as I could see, out of greed, hatred, or delusion. Um, but nonetheless, it had a, a consequence of something quite a bit less than, than a fully loving and open relationship. That's funny you should say that, because uh, one, one of the biggest uh, hang-ups, I think, in, or the troubles in the relationship I have with my girlfriend is that I'll have a feeling of anger or, or something like that, or, or hatred, or just, just aversion for some simple action, maybe because she's chewing gum or something like that. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't say it because it feels too ridiculous to say something like that. And I wouldn't say it because it's not worth hassling her for something which is so trivial, and it's my problem, right? Mm -hmm. But just not saying it, the aversion increases, mm -hmm. and it gets worse. And, and there's like this silence, Mm -hmm. which, uh, which builds. Mm -hmm. That's, That's true. That's true. The really powerful thing about this whole sense of, of what's, what's right or what's wrong is, is recognizing that all we have to do is look at our own experience and then we can see, you know, that which causes more difficulty and more pain and more aversion and that which, which serves to, to heal that in some way. And it's all based on a sense of our own awareness and recognition for ourselves just from looking. So it only takes looking, you know, and looking carefully and honestly at, at what seems to be the consequence of, of any action. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you all.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.